Our scripture reading today is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. Well, hands down, the best looking scripture reader in the history of Mosaic Church. If you're new here, that's my wife. Good morning, Mosaic. My name is Brett Milliken, one of the pastors here. Before we get into our message today, I want to give you a quick heads up for next week. We'll be kicking off a new series next week titled For the Love. We're going to be looking at the love of God as seen through the gospel of John. And Pastor Moore, we're going to be back next week to kick that series off for us. So make sure that you're here and you don't miss that. Today, however, we're going to finish our storyteller series as we've been taking a look at both the words and the backstories of some of our favorite psalms. Because like any poem or song, the lyrics can be powerful in and of themselves. When you know the motivation behind those lyrics, behind the song, it begins to take on a new meaning. For example, take one of my favorite Beatles songs titled, Let It Be. Now, I always thought that when Paul McCartney sat down to pen the words, when I find myself in times of trouble, come on, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. I will not quit my day job. Thank you, Eddie. I thought when he penned those words, he was coming from some Catholic background and trying to be spiritual in the late 60s. But recently I saw a video of Paul McCartney doing an interview with James Gordon, the talk show host, and they're driving around in a car in Liverpool. And McCartney is telling the story of this song. And he says that this song in the late 60s, he was was in just an immense time of stress, a time of pressure, a time of anxiety, a time of trouble where he's contemplating leaving the band. And one night in the late 60s, he goes to sleep, he has a dream, and in that dream, his mother, who had passed away when he was 14 years old, years and years before, comes to him in this dream. And in the dream, he's pleading with his mother, he's confessing to his mother, Mom, I can't take it, I don't know what to do, the stress, the pressure, the anxiety, it's too much for me, I don't know how to handle it. And his mother, in this dream, her name happened, well, not in the dream, but in real life, her name is Mary, her name was Mary. She comes to him in this dream and she says, Paul. It's going to be okay. Just let it be. Well, Paul wakes up with this phrase ringing in his mind, a newfound uh, peace in his heart, and he sits down and he pins the words to this song. Now, shortly after, he decides to leave the band. Now, does that not change the way you hear the lyrics to that song? Well, the same is true 
when we look at the Psalms. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to take a look behind the curtain, behind the, the motivation of these words that were penned so many years ago in hopes that we might find our story in the midst of their stories and be caught up in the beauty and the splendor of God's glory the same way the psalmists were. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've heard the background behind Psalm 16 and Psalm 52, which are written in the early part of David's life. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 63, which is written towards the latter part or near the end of David's life in what many believe to be the most difficult moment King David had ever faced. See, this psalm was written long after David had been ordained by Samuel to be Israel's next king, long after he had served as a musician on King Saul's court, long after he had killed Goliath and become the military hero of his people, long after uh, he was nearly killed by Saul in a fit of jealousy, long after living on the run for eight years of his life in caves and deserts and foreign lands, which is what Tina preached on last week, long after Saul had died and David finally became king of Israel, some 25 years after Samuel told him he would be. Long after David commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders her husband and watches the baby that resulted from their affair die. This psalm was written during the season following all of that. So a few years after the affair with Bathsheba, one of David's other sons, a young man named Amnon, and fueled by lust for one of his half-sisters, Tamar, lures her into his bedroom, forces himself upon her, an act so despicable and so heinous it was punishable by death. And yet King David, the, the man of God's own heart, the righteous king, the mighty warrior, does nothing about it. One of his other sons, Absalom, in response to this, becomes just outraged and filled with revenge, goes and takes matters into his own hands and kills his brother Amnon. He then goes on the run because he's afraid that King David is now going to come after him to punish him for killing one of his sons. Of course, King David does not. Absalom is then gone for two years before King David has him brought back home. He's brought back into Israel, into Jerusalem, and yet David does not see him or talk to him for two additional years. Now, this unresolved conflict just continues to fester up in Absalom's heart, and the bitterness and the resentment for his father just grows and grows and grows. And when David hears about this, he says, bring my son to me. He's brought to the palace. David runs up, embraces him, gives him a kiss on the cheek, but by now it's too little, too late. Absalom is so filled with resentment and bitterness towards his father that he begins to plot to take over his throne. He begins to to try and gain a reputation for himself while simultaneously demeaning his father's reputation. He then ascends to the throne and, and takes the throne without David giving up any kind of a fight. He then goes in and sleeps with his father's wives in his father's palace in an attempt to disrespect and tear down his father's reputation. And once again, David is on the run for his life, fleeing, knowing that this time it's his son that wants him dead. Now, having spent his life walking through great victories, great betrayals, great disobedience, and great repentance, realizing that his current situation has as much to do with his failures as a father as it does with Amnon and Absalom's failures as his sons, David sits down in the wilderness and pens Psalm 63. And here's why I love this psalm. So over the course of David's life, he's had to suffer the consequences of sin committed against him, But now he's also having to suffer the consequences of his own sinful choices, which means this, every person in this room can relate to David in some way. We have all been sinned against, and yet we've all suffered the consequences of our own choices as well. And if we're honest, at some point during those moments, we've all looked for a way of escape, 
for an easy way out of our situations. When we read this psalm, what we learn from David is that escape is not what we actually need. That what we need in those moments is not someone who can deliver us from them, but someone who can stabilize us and take us through them and make us better having been through them coming out on the other side. And if we want to know God this way, the way David knew God, then we need to understand what David understood. See, throughout his life, when things were good and when things were bad, David continually operated from three disciplines. And we see them here in Psalm 63. Number one, he pursued. Number two, he chewed. And number three, he stayed glued. I'm a big Dr. Seuss fan, so deal with it. Number one, he pursued. First three verses, O God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you on a dry, weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now with all hell breaking loose, betrayed by his own son, confronted with his own failure as a father, David says, earnestly, I seek God. Now this word earnestly is actually pretty tricky to translate. Some translations have it as early, others translate it as earnestly. Now it's literal meaning means to long for, to seek first, to break forth. So it carries with it this concept of chasing after something that is so important to you, so valuable, that it is the thing you seek above every other thing. Now think about this. Just days, if not hours, before writing these, this song, David was living in his palace, enjoying a nice soft bed, eating the best foods, drinking the sweetest wine, dressed in royal robes, ruling over an entire nation. He had access to the tabernacle to go worship God whenever he wanted to, which was the pinnacle of Israeli culture at that time. And yet now he sits in a cave somewhere in the desert with nothing but the ground for a bed, a rock for a pillow. He has no home, no food, no water. He can't go to the tabernacle to worship. And yet the cry of his heart is to say, God, you are what I long for. He doesn't say, God, I long for safety. He doesn't say, God, I long for revenge. He doesn't say, God, I long for comfort or answers to my situation. He doesn't say, God, get me out of this mess. No, in the midst of the ultimate betrayal of his own son, the loss of everything that he had, David cries out and says, my God, you are the deepest desire of my heart. But what was it that motivated David to respond this way in the midst of such a train wreck of a situation? Well, we see it in verse three when David says, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. See, David, God was what David wanted most because God was what David realizes he needed most. See, to David, having God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love was better than anything life could offer. It was better than having the crown. It was better than having the comfort. Now, do you see what David is saying here? He's saying, God, I don't just want you for your stuff. I want you. He's saying, God, you're not some means to another end that I'm pursuing. You are the end that I'm pursuing here. Now, one of my all-time favorite speeches was given by Dr. King on April 3rd, 1968, less than 24 hours before he would be shot and killed. And in his closing remarks, having been through assassination attempts, death threats, false imprisonment, bombings of his house, all over the previous years, in his last speech he would ever give, he closes it with this. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now. 
because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want to tell you tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. See, Dr. King is echoing David's sentiment here. He's saying, the glory of the Lord seen through justice, equality, and love was so much better than life itself that he wasn't worried about any threats or any consequences that may come as a result. Dr. King just wanted to do God's will. So often over the last 16 years of ministry, I've counseled people and and couples who have just not been happy with their current situations. And so often what's, what's really going on in those moments is that life has not turned out the way they thought it would. They didn't get the job they wanted. They're not as happy in that relationship as they thought they would be. And all these accusations begin to rise up in their heart that says, if God really loved me, he would do what makes me happy. But don't you see, that's not loving God. That's simply wanting God's stuff. Now, could you imagine if your spouse, your kids, your friends came to you and they said, I will love you as long as you give me what I want. Or as long as you tell me what I want to hear. See, they're not loving you. And honestly, if you go along with that, you're not loving them either. All you're doing is enabling their own self-centered, destructive habits. And yet so often that's how we approach God. I'll love you as long as it's convenient, Lord, as long as it feels good. And then we get angry when God doesn't enable our own self-destruction. Let me just be blunt with you for a moment. If you're chasing after anyone or anything more than God, that's called idolatry. And it's only a matter of when, not if, those idols will ultimately fail your expectations and your life will begin to spiral out of control. And listen, you don't really want a God who gives you everything you desire when you demand he do so. Because listen, and listen carefully, creation was never meant to carry the weight of your worship. Only the God in whose image you were made can do that. But if we can see what David saw, that rather than being entitled to our own happiness, we're actually deserving of exile from God's presence. And yet in response to that, God has continually and unconditionally loved us then we too will begin to understand that God's loving kindness is truly better than anything life can bring us or throw at us. But here's the hard reality. You and I will never be convinced of that truth just by hearing a sermon or by having a spiritual moment or just turning to God in times of crisis. So those things can help us get there. But to truly be convinced in your heart That God's love is better than life itself takes a consistent pursuit in the good times and the bad times. Which brings us to point number two. See, David pursued God first because he chewed on God's glory most. Now, what do I mean by chewed? When we look in verses four and five, we read this. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now, this word satisfied means to be completely filled, to have had enough. It's the idea of of being so weak from hunger, but then coming upon some food that after eating it, doesn't just take the edge off, but completely satisfies and fulfills you that you're not even hungry anymore. It's kind of like having that last piece of pie at the end of Thanksgiving dinner 
and then sitting back in your sofa and going, man, I am stuffed. See, now David is literally in a cave feeling empty in every way that a person can feel empty. He has no food. He has no water, no throne, no wife. He's just lost two of his sons in the last couple of years. He is starving physically. He's starving relationally. He's starving emotionally, and he is starving spiritually. And yet his response to all of this is to sit in this cave and say, man, I am stuffed with the love and glory of God. I am completely satisfied that all I need is all I have, the presence of my God. And the reason David could say that now is because David had been chewing on God's glory the entirety of his life. Think about it. When he's overlooked by his father and sent out to shepherd the sheep in the fields, David is chewing on the glory of God. When standing toe-to-toe with Goliath, David is chewing on the glory of God. When tempted to retaliate against King Saul, David is chewing on the glory of God. When confronted with his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, David cries out in repentance, knowing that he had betrayed the love and glory of God. His entire life, David had been meditating on God's glory and God's love. That's why 76 of the 150 Psalms are written by King David. Now, one of the amazing young men I got to spend time with this past week in the Dominican Republic was a young Haitian brother named Miguel. Now, Miguel works with Macarios, the organization that we were partnering with on our mission trip there. He's 21 years old. He grew up in one of the most impoverished communities on the north side of the DR where Macarios is doing some of their work. Now, as a kid, he experienced real hunger. And not just the kind of hunger our kids experience when they say, I'm starving. He literally was starving as a child. He faced racism and prejudice at the hands of Dominican children. He was on a fast track to dropping out of school and repeating the cycle of poverty in his life. But two things happened in his childhood. First, Macarios became into his neighborhood and began doing tutoring programs and working with the families in his neighborhood. And secondly, Compassion International added him to their sponsorship program. Now, through those two events, Miguel began to receive food and education and clothing, but more importantly, he received a connection to God and to a local church. Soon after, Miguel came to faith in Christ, graduated from high school, and knowing what Macarios was doing in his neighborhood, he went to the Macarios offices and said, is there any way I can be a part of what you're doing? When I asked him, and what inspired you to do what you're doing, to do this work? He told me that growing up with nothing was difficult, that the fear of not knowing where your next meal was going to come from was so intense. But he said when Macarios and Compassion got involved in his life, he began to see God's grace and God's glory at work. And that grace and that glory, he said, sustained him for the next 13 years of his life, day in and day out. And that now all he wants to do is carry that glory and that grace back into the lives of these kids that are living with that same fear and that same shame that he once felt. Now, have you ever tasted God like that? Have you ever found his presence in your life so satisfying that the taste of anything else paled in comparison? Is God's love and grace a daily part of your spiritual diet? Are we chewing on God's grace like a daily vitamin? Or are we treating him like an antibiotic, just reaching to him when trouble comes? See, if we're taking the vitamins, then when the virus does come, it comes with less strength and shorter duration. 
See, the same is true in our pursuit of God, saying in his presence on a daily basis, it won't eliminate difficult situations in our lives, but it will definitely make us stronger and more capable of overcoming those situations when they happen. So are we meditating on his word consistently? Are we worshiping him in prayer consistently? Are we spending time in community with his people consistently? So these are God's gift to us to help us experience the ongoing daily satisfaction of his love. But see, this too requires perseverance because there are going to be times, I promise you, when God's glory and God's grace does not taste very good. Which brings me to my last point. David didn't just pursue God first and chew on God's glory most. He also stayed glued to God's presence no matter what. In verse eight, we read this. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. This word cling is the same word used in Genesis 2 when it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It means to stick to, to adhere to, to be glued together. Now throughout David's life, he was continually faced with this choice to either let my circumstances define who God is or let who I know God to be redefine the circumstances I'm experiencing. David always chose the latter. No matter what he went through, be it at the hands of another or the consequences of his own choices, David refused to let his situation steal his desire to be in God's presence. You see, David knew God was faithful when he was faithless. He knew God was powerful when he was weak. He knew God was the one who held him in the palm of his hands, and therefore David refused to turn his back on his God, even when nobody would have blamed him for doing so. It's the same heart we see in Job when his wife says, won't you just curse God and die? And Job says, woman, you're talking foolishness. It's the same heart we see in Paul when he writes one of my favorite verses in the book of Philippians, chapter one, verse 21. He says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, David, Job, and Paul are all saying the same thing here. They're saying, Lord, regardless of my circumstances, I choose to trust you. And I will follow you even into the darkest of caves if you so will it. Where you go, I will go. And when life doesn't go the way I want it to, I will let that pain be a window into your heart rather than a closed door to mine. See, I've experienced this at times in my own life. One in particular was during the first of four miscarriages that my wife and I have been through. And I can vividly remember praying for that baby to make it, to survive, regardless of what the reports a doctor had given us. I believe, God, your word supersedes the doctor's words. I'm claiming scripture. I'm confessing faith. And then we lose the baby. And in that moment, man, I was in this tug of war, frustrated, angry, disappointed, confused, tempted to want to turn away from God because he didn't do things the way I thought he ought to be doing them. And in that moment, I had a choice. Either I stick to him or I become my own God. And I chose to stay glued. And when I made that choice, the Holy Spirit came to me and he said, oh, son, my heart breaks too. Death was never a part of my design. And then he said something that marked me for the rest of my life. He said, don't forget, I'm with you in your pain because I also know what it feels like to lose a son. See, in that moment, my darkness became light to me. The thing that had threatened to blind me to God's faithfulness 
when I made the choice to stick it out, to say, God, I trust you, that darkness began to illuminate how truly gracious he had been to me. You see, pain does two things in our lives. First, it reminds us that we live in a broken world that is very much in need of God's love and healing. And second, it reminds us that this loving God willingly stepped into that brokenness to give his life in order to accomplish that very healing that we needed. And if we let it, pain reveals both the goodness and the loving kindness of God in our hearts. But here's the thing, we have to let it. And that isn't something that we can do just by forcing ourselves into it. See, staying glued to God doesn't just happen because we come to church a couple of times a month. It doesn't just happen because we try harder at reading our Bibles every day. It doesn't just happen because we double down the amount of time we spend in prayer. See, it doesn't grow out of some form of pick yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity. So what I'm talking about isn't just being more disciplined in your religion. See, that's the opposite of what David is doing here. Yes, David was disciplined, but it was not a discipline of behavior. It was a discipline of desire. See, disciplining our behavior isn't a, it's not a bad thing. I mean, but listen, we've all been in a place where sheer will and determination and just gritting through it fails us when we hit the wall and come to the end of ourselves and say, I cannot take it anymore. There is no amount of willpower that's going to carry you through. Now, in those moments, we need something more than just our own stick to We need something powerful enough to carry us through the greatest moment of betrayal, through the deepest moments of pain. Something that can keep us pursuing, chewing, and gluing when we come to the end of ourselves. We need perfect love. See, it was David's love for God, not his obligation to God, that enabled him to continually chase after God. And we see this in the very first verse of Psalm 63, where he says, Oh God, you are my God. Now that one little word, my, tells us everything that we need to know here. You see, my is a covenantal word. It's an intimacy word. It's a word reserved for the people in our lives that we love the most. And we think about it. If you hear me talking about Melissa and I say, my wife. If I talk about Kylie, I say, my princess. If I'm talking about my boys, I say, my little man. If I'm talking about Helena, I say yini kanjo, which is I'm heart for my beauty. See, my is a word of intimacy, of covenant. I mean, could you imagine if I was talking about Pastor Shad and I said, oh, my Shad. Or if I was talking about Pastor Corey and I said, my Corey. Like Caress and Wyatt are going to have some issues with that. Right? You're immediately going to recognize something sounds off there. Because we all know that that term, my, is a term of intimacy. It's a term of covenant. See, my kids get to say, my daddy, because in many ways, they possess me. They know that I've committed myself to sacrificing for them, to, to being what, I need, what they need me to be. I've obligated myself to that commitment. And in response to that obligation, they get to say, my daddy. See, David is showing us what kind of relationship he has with God here. It's one of intimacy. It's a relationship where David recognizes not only does he belong to God, but God belongs to David. See, he's essentially saying at the very beginning of this psalm that the reason he pursues God first, chews on God's glory most, and stays glued to God's presence no matter what 
It's because God has obligated himself to being David's savior, to being his deliverer, to being his refuge, to being his God. But here's the kicker. For me to be in that relationship with my kids and for God to be in that relationship with David is extremely costly. See, it's costly because my kids don't have jobs. And there are just things they cannot do for themselves that out of my obligation, I have to step into their lives and be for them where they cannot be for themselves. And when David realized that despite his failure as a father, his failure as a king, his failure as a man, that God was still obligated to him, that God was still honoring that commitment to say, David, I am still your God. I am still what you need. I will still be all that you need me to be. David comes undone in the presence of that love. But how can we, in the middle of our own wilderness of pain, know that we have this same kind of intimacy with and commitment from our God? Well, to do that, we have to look at another place where David was reminded of God's covenantal faithfulness. Another psalm where David cries out, my God. The first line of Psalm 22 starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this may sound like the opposite of David feeling loved by God, but if you read the crucifixion accounts of Matthew and Mark's Gospels, you'll recognize these are some of the last words Jesus cries out while hanging on the cross. See, nearly a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion and 750 years before crucifixion even existed, David is receiving a prophetic vision from God showing him what the Messiah, the son of David, catch that, would endure on his behalf one day. And on the cross, Jesus screams out this line to let the people around him know that he was fulfilling what David had seen nearly a thousand years prior to it taking place. And as we get to the bottom of Psalm 22, we read this. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. See, what David was seeing here and what David is telling us is what the Messiah would actually have to die from. Now, as you may know, after Jesus died, the soldier comes up, he runs a spear through his chest, and what comes out? Water and blood. Now, from a medical view, what's happening here is that Jesus most likely died from what's known as a pericardial effusion. It's a condition where the sac surrounding the heart fills with fluid and causes heart failure because of the pressure that it creates. This is typically caused by a sudden and massive increase in the bloodstream of a hormone known as cortisol. That increase of cortisol is typically caused by an intense moment of stress or trauma. Now, the medical community has come up with a nickname for this condition. They call it broken heart syndrome. Because one of the most common causes of this loss of, 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 this, of this condition is the loss of long-term intimacy and companionship. Like when a couple that's been married for 40 to 50 years, one of the spouses dies and the other spouse dies soon after, this is often what's happening. The loss of that companionship is such a traumatic experience for them that their body is flooded with cortisol, which affects their heart and causes a pericardial effusion, causing them to die from heart failure. So what David was seeing in Psalm 22 was the very real moment where Jesus willingly stepped into his place and ours to become sin for us and God the Father in his perfect righteousness, withdrawing his presence from Jesus the Son. And for the first time in eternity, the perfect love and intimacy that exists within the Trinity was broken. 
And that loss of intimacy with the Father was so traumatic to Jesus' body that cortisol flooded his system, his pericardial sac filled with fluid, and he literally died from a broken heart. See, here's the thing. David's heart broke because of the disobedience of his sons. But David's greater son, Jesus, his heart broke because of his perfect obedience to his father. See, in David's failure to do what was just, he found God's presence still remained. But when Jesus did what was perfectly just, he found God's presence had abandoned him. See, Jesus became like us Absaloms, the ones who sought to overthrow our father as king so that we Absaloms could become like Jesus, the son who willingly trusted in his father's righteousness, even to the point of death. So listen, we live in a broken world today, a world full of betrayal, full of letdowns, full of death, a world fractured by sin and not as God intended it to be. And yet Jesus willingly stepped into that brokenness, into our brokenness, to not only reconcile us back to himself, but to then through us reconcile the world back to his intended design. And in your moment of trouble, I promise you, Jesus has not abandoned you. He has drawn even closer, not to deliver you from it, but to redeem you through it. Let us not abandon him when he doesn't give us what we want because he did not abandon us when we failed to give him the glory and honor that is due his name. May we, like David, learn to pursue God first, to chew on his love and grace the most, and to stay glued to him through every circumstance. May we too be able to say with conviction that his loving kindness is truly better than life, and our lips will praise him. Because listen, there's an entire world out there grasping for straws, trying to find happiness. And my prayer is that we could be the kind of people, the kind of church that shows them that happiness is not actually what they want or what they need, but that the joy of the Lord can be their strength. See, David realized that in his moment of despair because he caught a glimpse of the unending, unbreaking, perfect love of God poured out for him. My prayer is that we would glimpse the same. If you've never done that, if you've never glimpsed that love, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus as King and Savior, and I pray today is your day. When we close here in just a moment, we'll have a prayer team up front ready to pray with you, to stand with you, to talk with you. And if you're a Christian here today and you find yourself in a difficult moment, tempted to turn away from God, questioning what it is he's up to in your life, we want to pray with you as well and ask God to give you the strength to say, oh God, You are still my God.